Heavenly Father, please help us to um, think clearly now and to um, take seriously what you have to say to us in this part of your word. Amen. Folks, I want you to think for a sec. Uh, what do you think of having fights in church? Having fights in church. Uh, you, what sort of fight? Not punch-ups, you know, disagreements, conflicts, that sort of stuff. Maybe you've experienced it before. Maybe it was really nasty and horrible. Uh, if you haven't experienced it before, imagine the one in your office. If you really are struggling, remember back to high school, that level of, you know, really, really mature stuff now. What do you think of having fights, having disagreements, having conflicts? I reckon, I hope you think it's pretty unpleasant at best. Uh, even the best conflicts you'd rather you don't have. There's different types, aren't there? There's some conflicts, there's some fights you have that are just so immature and so sinful, basically. Like, there's just there's nothing clean, nothing good about it. It's just small-minded, selfish reasoning. It can be really dirty, really regrettable. And so I hope we don't like fights much. I think it's a healthy instinct. Um, some people do. Have you come across people who really like conflict? Like, they kind of thrive on it? Because they love the adrenaline rush. You come across that at all? Maybe, I don't know, any you are that kind of person. I only come across this sort of person pretty rarely, uh, where it's kind of their instinct is to pursue conflict and sort of push it out of the, uh, the situation. Uh, I just want to say, I think it's pretty hard to follow the Prince of Peace, Jesus, and to love conflict, to love uh, fighting, basically. But there's actually an opposite danger, and that's what 1 Timothy is going to talk to us about. There is a real danger of being unwilling to fight and engage in conflict regardless of what's at stake. Uh, In short, there's a real danger that churches can be utterly spineless in the way they deal with situations. And that's the kind of thing 1 Timothy is talking about. There's a real danger that people won't pick fights when they're important to pick because it's not nice. Uh, we need to be sure, but be very careful. We don't mistake love for being nice. When the Bible talks about love, it doesn't mean being nice. They're two different, very different things. I'll, just, I'll, I'll define them for you. I think nice is about being inoffensive and seeming pleasant. It's just about seeming pleasant, being inoffensive. Love is about passionately treasuring and defending things that are important. And so love is about using our strength well. Love will lead you to fight. Love will lead you to not fight when it's the right time for that. Love will lead you to treasure things passionately and defend what's important. Love is the way of Jesus. Being nice isn't the way of Jesus. In fact, the way of Jesus will stop you being nice sometimes. Because you love the truth about Jesus and you love people and you want them to know Jesus truthfully. And so we've got a series here we're starting today called Community Worth Fighting For. One to me is a book about fighting. It's got a lot of fighting in it. Uh, I don't know how you feel about that. Uh, it's going to be interesting. Uh, and this one's called Fighting for the Church because the book, this letter was written by a guy called the Apostle Paul to uh, his apprentice, basically, called Timothy. And he said, I want you to go to the church in Ephesus and I want you to pick a fight. That is what he's gone to do. Go to Ephesus and pick a fight. Because you're to act in love, you're not to be nice, you need to be really, really intolerant of some stuff that's going on there, is what he's telling him. Because love and intolerance go together. Did you know that? Think about it for a moment. I think you know this. Certain types of love and intolerance go together. You love your children, those of you who have got them. You don't tolerate people treating them badly. You're intolerant towards certain things because of love. It's fairly straightforward, isn't it? And even our kids, I don't tolerate my kids doing certain things because I love them and I don't want them to act that way and so I don't tolerate them acting that way. Timothy's gotten to Ephesus and said, be intolerant. Act in love. Fix it up. 
It says lots of fighting words, lots of military words. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 18. I'll just try and avoid the microphone when I cough. Uh, It says, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command. There's a real fighting, like, military word. It's lots of commands in this. It's very uh, military sounding. In keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so Timothy was prophesied over that he would lead in a certain way, um, that by recalling you, you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to their faith. People have turned away from Jesus and lost everything. Go and fight, Timothy. So we need to be a church that fights well. Where's this place, Ephesus and um, uh, um, Macedonia? Um, It's important to show a map occasionally because when we talk about places in the Bible, we're talking about real stuff. Uh, It's not in Middle Earth, right? It's, It's real. Um, so here's a place called Ephesus over in Turkey, modern Turkey as I understand it. Uh, Macedonia is up there. All I want to say is Macedonia is where t- uh, Paul's gone. He's left Timothy in Ephesus to pick a fight and sort out what's going on in the church there that's endangering people following Jesus. So let's have a uh, start at uh, the beginning of 1 Timothy 1.1 uh, and just read what it says. Um, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope. Now, what's an apostle? Uh, It's worth remembering, apostles are the people specifically hand-picked by Jesus to represent him and to teach his his teaching authoritatively and to sort things out. That's why Paul can write to Timothy and say, go sort this church out. There's things endangering people following Jesus there. Go sort it out. And he's got a commander by the command of God our Saviour. If God is your commander, you better do what he says, I reckon. But God is a really, really good commander, I'd love us to just notice this sometimes. God is a really, really good commander. He uses his power, what for? Our saviour, to become our saviour, to send his son to die for our sins. And there's his son, the next little phrase there, of Christ Jesus, our hope. And whenever you see the word hope, it's not talking about wishful thinking, something that you just sort of desire or have in the future, kind of vague. It's saying we have this really certain future in Jesus. We have eternal life. That's how our commanders used his enormous power to give us eternal life in his kingdom forever. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, my apprentice. And listen to these little words he says in verse 2 here. Don't let your eyes sort of flit over these. They're mentioned so often that you can get bored with it, right? Have a look at what verse 2 says. You're supposed to treasure it every time you hear it. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So many of the letters of the Bible start that way with those kinds of words. And they're supposed to make your heart sing, right? Uh, if you're really familiar with them, maybe you don't hear that anymore. What is grace? Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve, giving us eternal life that we don't deserve, just as a free gift. What is mercy? Mercy is God seeing us when we're in the gutter and have nothing to bargain with and don't deserve anything. It's very close to grace, really. And taking pity on us and out of our, out of destitution, making us his children. What's peace? Peace is taking away the conflict between us and God and making harmony in its place instead. It's, it's, we'll be in perfect relationship with God forever. They just want to remind us all the time that those are ours if you're a Christian. And you're supposed to treasure it and you're supposed to love it and it's supposed to make your heart sing when you read it. Um, I, I don't care how you do that. Uh, I, I saw a guy who did this really well the, uh, in a way I can't do. I saw a, a, a black preacher who had kind of style I can't do because I don't have his cultural skills. Um, 
And every time you see these sorts of words, you say, here's what you're supposed to do when you see these words. You're supposed to go, mm-mm, mm-mm, mm You can get that, you know what I mean? Like, and he's just, he's treasuring it, and he loves it, and he's just like, you see that, oh, grace. Mm-mm, mm Yeah, that's my new Jesus. You know, like, it's, it's, it, he's got it, you know? You're supposed to treasure it. So don't let, you, don't let those things sort of pass you by as you read them. Really precious. Jesus has made us his people forever, and with this certain hope in the future. Paul gets into the letter, though. Here's the charge. Here's what he's supposed to do. Verse 3. As I urged you, when I went into Macedonia, that place up there in the north, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work. you kind of got the authority structure set up already, haven't you? God's in charge. He said his son has appointed people like Paul to be apostles. And Paul the apostle, the authoritative representative of Jesus, is saying, hey, Timothy, you're my apprentice. You've got authority to go in this situation and sort it out. And so that's what's going on in the, in the book here. But the things he's got to sort out sound really weird. Like, I actually struggle to find, like, things that are, like, contemporary problems that sound like this. Um, make sure people don't devote themselves to endless genealogies. Like, you know, like lists of like where people came from, their family tree stuff. It's like, you know, Ancestry.com heresy. Like, why, why are people going to devote themselves to this? And the Bible's full of, um, full of uh, genealogies. I'll, I'll show you one. And it's in small font and it's probably kind of appropriate because it's long and that's not even all of it. Here's the genealogy. This is the account of Shem's family line. Two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Arphaxat. After he became the father of Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arphaxad had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shelah. After he became the father of Shelah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he became the father of Eber. After he became the father of Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. And Eber lived 34 years, became the father of Peleg. And after Peleg, anyway, you get the idea. I don't need to read that slow. Um, it goes on and on, and you go, people are going to make big theories about this and, be, and, and, and cause upset in church that you need to go and fight because of it. It seems really, really strange. Um, I want to say, though, the book isn't having a go at this part of the Bible. I'm not saying it's unimportant. Please don't hear me saying that. It's actually very important. Um, he's just saying don't speculate about it. What this part of the Bible is supposed to do is set up Abraham. It's saying this is, Abraham's a real guy, he's his ancestors, and then God called Abraham and said, through you, I'll bless the whole world. And through families, Abraham's family line, he did bless the whole world because he had a descendant called Jesus. And so it's really important. You read the beginning of Matthew's gospel or Luke's gospel, you'll have a genealogy. And it's really important because Jesus is a real guy. He's a descendant of Abraham. And that means we can trust him and have salvation. And so he's not having a go at genealogies. But in a certain culture... Um, people have made false teaching by speculating about this stuff and making weird theories about it. And I've only very rarely come across weird theories that anything like this, but I'll give you a couple. Because um, then you can sort of generalise and see the, see, see the sort of problem. Um, basically, people make up stories that are of supreme spiritual importance that set them apart as more important than other people. I think that's what's going on. Um, I ha- there was a, a guy in my first teaching position who was the head of the department, and he went to a church, I'm not sure which one, but it was quite strange. Um, he thought it was very important. You've heard of King David? King David's the great king of Israel. King David's crown had a jewel on it. That jewel was passed down and is now on the crown of the Queen of England. 
the Queen of England is the descendant of David and will rule forever. Um, and uh, you believe this stuff. Like, you're just going, what's that about? It's, it's a weird speculative theory which I couldn't really follow. Um, I'll give you one that I, I think is a little more fun and it's not disastrous because I don't think anybody actually believes it. Um, when lots of Ethiopians got converted in the early centuries of the church, they wanted to connect their story to the history of Israel and so they made up this story. It's just amazing. You know who King Solomon is? King Solomon is King David's son. Great, great man, very wealthy, very important. A, a queen went to see him called the Queen of Sheba. It's in 1 Kings 11, I think. Um, and she was amazed by his wisdom. And she went back to her country, Ethiopia. That's where she was from. And so the Ethiopian uh, people at some point made up a story to go with that. They said, uh, yeah, she went back and she was pregnant with Solomon's son. Um, and when that little boy grew up, he decided to go back and, and meet his dad. And his dad decided to give him an awesome present. Guess what the present was? The Ark of the Covenant, which he took back to Ethiopia, which means, you know, Indiana Jones looked in the wrong place because the Ark of the Covenant apparently is in Ethiopia. And so people occasionally have uh, interest in making up these kind of spiritual stories that makes their country or their people very important and bigger than other people, right? That's what's going on here. Devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. It's, it's, it's pulling up their own importance. You can just manipulate people and do whatever you want if you can convince them of you know, funky spiritual stories that, you know, make you seem more important, basically. Well, how does he want to deal with it? He just says, these guys don't know what they're talking about and they're doing it out of bad motives. Have a look at verse 5. Uh, the goal of this command uh, to stop um, th- these people is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and they've turned into meaningless talk. They're just doing this stuff that's it's just nonsense. They want to be teachers of the law. The law is a really important part of the Bible, but they don't know what they are talking about. They just don't know what they're talking about and what they so confidently affirm. Folks, it really matters uh, that we know the Bible and we're able to keep watching when people are making stuff up and we call people to account that they're following what the Bible says because he just says, these people don't know what they're talking about. They're, not follow- they're descending into meaningless talk and speculation. We need to be on the lookout for it. Um, there's a couple of things I want to make sure you don't think this is saying, because I think this is often misread. Um, last week, Stuart preached a sermon on the Trinity. That's a hard topic. Uh, this isn't saying don't talk about hard topics, right? It's saying don't make stuff up. The Bible wants to raise all kinds of hard topics, and we need to wrestle with them and take them seriously, because it's God speaking. Another way I've heard it uh, misused is, uh, there's bits I don't like that seem unimportant, and so I'm going to ignore that. It's not saying that either. Or maybe just like, oh, in Bible study, we couldn't agree what this said, so it clearly doesn't matter, we'll just agree to disagree. No, I don't think so. It's just saying, don't make stuff up. We're supposed to take doctrine seriously. We're supposed to engage with it seriously and treat the Bible seriously because, as he's going to say in 2 Timothy, all of the Bible is God-breathed. It's all his word, and all of it is really useful for Christians. We need to engage with it. We need to take it seriously. He does describe some of the differences, though, between uh, what these teachers do and the outcome it has um, in their life. Have a look at just... I'll just put the, um, some differences up on the screen here so you can sort of see it in, in summary form. So on one side, you've got the false doctrine people teaching nonsense, myths, endless genealogies, and the other side, what he calls sound doctrine, just truth that comes from the gospel, the announcement of Jesus. On one side, controversial ex- uh, speculation. On the other side trying to get people to trust Jesus and love Jesus. It's real simple. 
meaningless talk, don't know what they're talking about. On the other hand, sound doctrine leads people, like true teaching, leads people to love each other. It leads people to have pure devotion to Jesus. That's what pure heart means, single-minded devotion to Jesus. It leads them to have a good conscience. That means we don't think and feel we're guilty because we know Jesus, the Saviour, who has taken away our sins and having a sincere faith in him, therefore. And see, what, this is what happens when you make up false doctrines because what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to make me more important, which means the false doctrine, this weird, funky story I've made, is now the basis of me being right with God. Do you get how that's going? And that means I am no longer confident that Jesus has taken away my sins because I'm making up other stuff to compensate. And so what he's saying is it won't lead you to trust Jesus wholeheartedly and therefore that won't lead you to love other people because what happens when you aren't confident in your standing with God? You have to spend an awful lot of energy justifying yourself. You can sit here trusting in Jesus today and know you don't have to spend any of your energy justifying yourself before your creator at all. All of your energy is freed up to serve other people the way he did instead. Come down to verse 8. Things he's supposed to fight for. So he's supposed to fight against the meaningless talk. He's supposed to fight for the right use of God's law. Um, Have a look at what verse 8 says. There's a bit of a play on words. Um, I'll point it out to you. It says, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly or if one uses it lawfully. We also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers or for the lawless. So he's kind of playing on the use of the word law there to make his point. He says, the law is good. First thing, can you say that the law of God is good? If you've been a Christian for a while, um, or if you haven't, uh, that's fine. The first part of the Bible here, the first five books, uh, is called the law. Uh, It has lots of rules in it, rules that Moses mainly gave to Israel. It's those books up there. Um, And you might read those and think, they have nothing to do with me as a Christian. First thing I want to ask you is, can you repeat verse 8? We know that the law is good. It's really important. The law is good. You remember the Bible reading that Luke read to us before? And this is still just as true for Christians, this part, uh, as it is for anybody uh, of God's people through the ages. Psalm 119. Just listen to the passion this guy has for God's law because he thinks it teaches him to live rightly and to know who God is and how to live and, and, and to be wise. He says, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. Your commands are always with me and they make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than my teachers for I meditate, I think deeply on your statutes. There's all he's saying. He goes on and on about the law and it's so wonderful and it helps me to live well. Christians should be able to repeat that wholeheartedly. We're supposed to love the whole Bible because it's all the Christian Bible. Now, I just want to explain, though, because he doesn't just say that, does he? He says, we know the law's good if you use it properly. Because we also know the law's not made for righteous people, for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful. It's made to expose sin. Um, I'm going to just put something on on the screen here to to, to summarise something. It's a bit of a, a bigger point about how the law works for Christians. It's something for you to think about. Um, but... Uh, it's, it's broader than this passage. You can talk about me, to me about it afterwards. Basically, we have this thing called the law of Moses. It has four things it does for us in the Bible. Um, one thing is it's the legal code, right? When it was given to the people of Israel, it was their legal code for how they lived as a society. And as a legal code, it showed them what sin was. Because if you know what a rule is, and then you see yourself breaking the rule, you know it's sin, right? Does that, that make sense? So that's what it's supposed to do. It shows what sin is and does it as a legal code, though. It also does other things. It prophesies about Jesus, 
It teaches that the, the coming king will come um, and save us, and it teaches lots of things about the future when Jesus will come. It does another thing, though. It teaches wisdom. It teaches people how to live. Not just as law, like here's the rules and if you do the wrong thing you'll be punished. It's like here's the good way to live. Here's the wise way to live. Now, when Jesus comes along, he abolishes the law in a particular way, a very particular way, all right? And this, is, this takes some time to wrap your head around. All he abolishes, really, is the law is no longer a legal code. See, I don't obey the law and I am not condemned by the law of Moses as a legal code. I don't have to obey it at that level and I can't be condemned for not obeying it because Jesus has paid for my sins and I can't be accused by it. However, as I read the law as a Christian, I see Jesus in it. It still prophesies about Jesus and it still teaches me God's way. We're supposed to read it and learn God's way and learn God's wisdom and learn how to live his way and, and how to follow him and that sort of thing. And it still shows how sinful what it is. That's a little bit more complicated as, uh, as we read the passage here. What does the passage say about how it's supposed to do for sin? It doesn't show righteous people how to live, mainly, and what they're doing wrong. It shows ungodly people that they sin and they need a saviour. They do all these awful things because it contradicts God's law. Do you kind of get what I'm getting at there? It's really important. Some Christians say the law is just nothing for Christians. You don't need to think about it anymore. It's not true. The law is actually really important. It teaches us wisdom. It teaches us how to live God's way. So we're not freed from loving the law or being shaped by the law. We're supposed to be, uh, love the law and follow it. And then Paul says some things that are absolutely wonderful because you've got to know the law, you've got to know what sin is to be thankful for a saviour. Listen to Paul's um, story and his testimony. Paul the Apostle, he was not a good guy. Verse 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. He's got this role of being an apostle and telling the gospel to people. Here's his story. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. He sincerely thought he was following God. Uh, He was desperately wrong. In fact, he did absolutely wicked things. He said, but the grace of our Lord, there's that wonderful word, Mm -mm 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 -mm. the grace of our Lord, the free gift, was poured out on me abundantly, along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He's a trustworthy saving that deserves full acceptance. If you've got your highlighter and it's your Bible, not a church Bible, highlight it, because it says it's a trustworthy saying and it's deserving full acceptance. He's trying to draw your attention to it. Here it is. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so in me, the worst of sinners... Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul is saying, if Jesus can save me, Jesus can save anyone. It's really, really important we get that point. Sometimes I come across people, and I was was preaching at a year 12 study camp this week, and there's people in this boat, there's people like this everywhere, where they think, God could never forgive me for that thing I did. I just I, He couldn't forgive me. I'm too guilty. And Paul's whole point here is that is not true. Jesus came to save sinners just like you, just like them, just like me. That's Christianity 101. It's a trustworthy saying. The whole point is Paul is an extreme sinner, and if God, Jesus can save him, he can save anyone. Uh, a few years ago, there was a, a poster on churches that some people used called, uh, it said, Jesus loves Osama as in Osama bin Laden, uh, it was back then, 
Uh, and it quoted Jesus, which said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And the media got into it. And the Prime Minister at the time, I think it was, um, I don't think it was Kay Rudd. Was it, um, was it Howard? It might have been Howard. Um, said, um, I'm sure the Australian public would appreciate if Christians directed their prayers better than that. Or something, something like that. Uh, you know, Jesus loves the psalm, I pray for your enemies. Um, but that's the point. Osama bin Laden is beyond Jesus' forgiveness. This is the scandal of the gospel. If, if Jesus could save the Apostle Paul, he could save anyone. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's a truth worth fighting for and not tolerating when it goes sideways and people deny it. It's one last thing he wants to fight, and I think you'll be a bit shocked by it. Um, after hearing about how open the forgiveness of Jesus is to anyone and everyone, there's one thing he just won't tolerate, and he has no patience for it all. Fake Christians. By fake Christians, I don't mean I feel hypocritical, I sin and I, feel, I repent and that sort of thing. I want to be very careful here with what I mean. What he means is he has no tolerance for people and he's going to fight against people who profess the name of Jesus and yet openly oppose Christian teaching and morality. Do you get that? They say, here's what Jesus is on about, but I'm going to reject that and call myself a Christian. He's going to oppose that very strongly. Have a look what the verse says in verses 18 to 20. And this is what Timothy is there to fight. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to their faith. It's just, it just means that they've turned away from Jesus. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, two guys, um, who I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Now, that sounds strange. Uh, it's not spooky, actually, at all. It's, it's not a spooky thing he's done. It is a very difficult thing, and it's a very confronting thing, what he's done. I'll explain it in a minute. But what it requires from a church to do this is a combination of love and backbone from an entire church community. I'll just say that again. It requires a combination of love and backbone from an entire church community. Because what it means is chuck them out of the church and have absolutely nothing to do with them until they see they were wrong and come back. That's a heavy word. Where do I get that from? If you read 1 Corinthians 5, he talks about handing somebody over to Satan and he gives more information. There's a man engaging in very shameful immoral practices there and Paul says, you need to chuck him out of the church, hand him over to Satan. What's Satan got to do with it? I'll illustrate on the screen. Um, We're going to see this image, I think, a bit in our series because the church is the household of God. So we're going to have sort of a house shape. The church is centred on the Bible. This is the, the book people live by. It's God's way, it's God's word, and so there's a whole lot of people, there's a community of people who gather around that word and live under it together, and there should be more babies in that picture for that to be our church, but that's, that's just fine. Uh, you, get, you get the idea. Now, the picture is inside God's church, God's household, God's family, are people that Jesus has made clean. He's made them precious and, and, and clean in his sight forever. He's forgiven their sins. On the inside, it's white on the outside of the church community are people that are following the ways of Satan. They've turned aside to sin and they don't care about Jesus and, and so that's outside the church community. And so it's kind of like Satan's territory out there. Don't think about it in terms of physical walls. It's about the people and the relationships, okay? Do you get the distinction? It's, it's about this church community of people who have been made clean in Jesus' sight and, and follow him. 
Now, these people are turning aside from Jesus and calling themselves Christian. And so he says, what you need to do is put them out into Satan's territory and lock the door. You need to put them out into the world and realise, actually, they are not part of Jesus' church. They're tricking themselves. We need to know why he's doing this. Sinners need to know they can be forgiven. We've just established that. However, people who self-identify as Christians but then go, look, I'm just going to engage in adultery and call it good and say I follow Jesus and go, get on with it. I'm not going to repent. See, there's forgiveness every time. But people who say, actually, I'm going to relabel this sin and call it good. And I'm going to relabel Jesus' teaching and call it Jesus' teaching and add stuff to it. And there's no tolerance for that. He says, lead, lead, throw them out of the church after you've warned them, you sorted all that, done it properly. And throw them out. And it sounds extreme. There's two reasons. For one thing, it shows the watching world that they aren't Christians, and that's really important. But for their own sake, and here's why it's love, hopefully it'll motivate them to repentance. It's made it really clear to them where the wall is, right? It's tough love. It's fighting. Um, I, I, I pray and never have to do this in my ministry, where somebody is, is claiming the name of Jesus and is just so rejecting him. Uh, and, and I have to engage in this sort of process. I, I hope I never, ever have to do it. But it would take a combination of love and backbone from an entire church community to do it, and here's why. Because when people say, actually, we're not going to do it that way, a few people say that, it undermines the whole process, doesn't it? Think about it. A couple of people say, oh, actually, you guys are being judgmental and unloving. I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to treat them like they're Christians still. Undermines the whole process. It takes a combination of backbone and love to do that because the apostle paul loved hymenaeus and alexander he loved them that's why he chucked them out (laughs) it's hard for us to to imagine but god is the judge of the world and he's not going to be fooled which of these two scenarios is worse that they defy jesus and then have a horrible experience of being thrown out of a church but then they realize oh they've done wrong and they repent and they return and they're part of god's family again and they know they're forgiven again. That, that's a horrible experience, right? But they they know they're forgiven at the end of it. Here's scenario two. The church doesn't have a spine and decides to be nice and unjudgmental. And it lets these people who are actually defying Jesus keep calling themselves Christians. But then they face God on the day of judgment when they meet the Lord of glory in his fury and they realize that they have treated him with such contempt and nobody want them. Which of those two scenarios is love? (laughs) See how tough love does tough things. That's what he's talking about. This is why it's a fight. That's why it looks pretty nasty, even though it's done done in love. Say again, I hope I never have to engage in this. But can you see, friends, I do want to say, you need to prepare yourself for these sorts of things when they're not happening so you can think clearly. Can you see how we as a church community would need to agree on what Jesus says and what Jesus' way is right before this happens And we need to have a united front in relating to this sort of issue for the good of the people we're serving in difficult ways. We'd have to be united in it or it just would not work. And that's what Paul's talking about here. When I say church fights are necessary, I'm probably not talking about the sort of thing that comes to your imagination. I know some of you have seen fights in churches and it's horrible and it's just sinful and it's stupid and it shouldn't happen. But when there's people who are turning away from Jesus, love will actually lead us to do tough things to help them, to warn them up front, to say this is wrong, and if they persist, the stuff I've just been talking about that's up on the screen, and pray desperately that they'll repent. 
So we're going to learn about fighting over the next few weeks, I think. Um, yeah, I hope God will train us for, for difficult things. How about I pray as we uh, respond to this? <coughs> uh, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a, a God of love and a God of uh, tough love, I suppose we could say. Um, thank you that you instruct us to do things that are good for each other, even when it seems impossibly hard or even a bit, it just doesn't seem nice. Uh, please help us to see clearly what's best for each other uh, and to be willing, if we have to, to engage in this sort of process. But we want to beg you, Father, that you would help each one of us to follow Jesus wholeheartedly and sincerely and to never have use for this kind of process. Um, please help give us the privilege of seeing that and the joy of seeing that. We thank and praise you, God, for the wonderful truths of the gospel that we hear so often. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy that you've shown to us in Jesus. We just didn't deserve all you've given us. And thank you so much that we now have peace with you forever. Help us to feel assured of this. And please, Father, help us to treasure this. In Jesus' name, amen.